Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome to yet a new show of the Thoth Hermes podcast. And this is episode 11 of our season 6. Today is Sunday, July the 4th. Happy Independence Day to all of you over there in the United States. And my name is Rudolf. I am talking to you from the outskirts of the lovely Austrian city of Vienna, the capital of our country. Well, today's guest in this show will be, again, one of the great names of occult and esoteric movements today, Mark Stavish. I'm very happy to welcome him here. It has been a long time since I had thought about that and finally we got together. We'll speak more about that, even about that, those four years that it took to get him on within a few moments when we start the interview. Before that, I would like to welcome everyone here who is here for the first time. Uh, it's always lovely to have new audience. And every time, every episode, I realize that there are again a few more people and new people that come on. But of course, my welcome goes also to all of you, to many, many of you who return every week to listen to this podcast. I'm very happy this is the case, and I hope you are going to enjoy also this week's episode, as I hope you usually do. If you want more information on this podcast, if you're new and want to get some background information or listen to older episodes, or if you want to go back to other episodes because you have already heard them and want to hear them again or get some information about some of you listened to, well, your place is the website, the website of Thoth Hermes, which is www.thothhermes.com. That is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And not only you can find the show notes for all the shows that have happened over the six seasons so far, you can also send me some feedback and I would really appreciate your feedback. You can do that via an email to info at thoughtshermes.com. But as I said, while you're on the website, why don't you go and con go to the contact form that you will find there? Or even better, you can send me a voicemail, a free voicemail from the website. You'll find on all the pages on the right side a little tag, a tag, and you click on that and there you are. Speak to me. Let me know what you think, what you like, maybe even what you dislike. Always happy to hear from you. Also, this show is supported by you, the audience, and I'm very glad about that. And as always, I have to ask you for more support. We need your support. We need you to be able to sustain, to be sustainable, to make this podcast happen every week. And for that, it's not for my income or for our income. It's just to make it happen, to make it run all the bandwidth we need, etc., etc. So if you can, and if you want to, please become a patron. 
You can do that also on the website. On the first page, there is a button that leads you directly to our Patreon page or go on to patreon.com and go there directly by looking for the Sauce Hermes podcast. If you prefer a one-off donation that is also possible, please click the donation button on the first page, on the homepage, and you will be led through the process. And thank you if you do that. And great thanks to all of you who are already patrons of this show and who support this podcast. Well, as always, before we go into the interview, we will play some music. And, well, this time, you know, it was funny because... Um, Already last week, maybe if you listened carefully to the interview I had with Chris Allen, you realized that we had wanted to do that interview two days earlier than we actually recorded it. And a thunderstorm that uh, with a big, um, a big breakdown of all the electrical lines here in the area, um, here in my place, uh, put us off and we had to do it two days later. And well, while I was doing this week's interview with Mark, uh, early this week on Tuesday, I think it was. Uh, yes, Tuesday it was, of course. Um, then uh, uh, we again had a heavy, heavy thunderstorm. No problems with electricity this time, but huge bangs and sounds in background, which I cut out. You won't hear them. But in any case, um, I was joking with Mark and Mark said, well, you know, it's Tuesday, so it's day of Mars. And well, that gave me the idea um, to play you Mars, to play as a first piece of music. You certainly know that famous piece by Gustav Holst, The Planets, which is, of course, not an all an astronomical piece of music, but an astrological piece of music. He takes the planets for what their symbolism is, and that's why it's a perfect fit, I think. Uh, this is, therefore, now a recording with Sir Thomas Beecham conducting, and you will hear... Mars from the Planets by Gustav Holst. Enjoy.
Gustav Holst, Mars from his orchestra work, The Planets. Wonderful music and as I said, it is quite a fit that we chose that. We recorded our interview on a Tuesday on the day of Mars and also it was quite an experience having this thunderstorm outside, which you won't hear. Um, okay, well, Mark Stavish, of course, will be my guest here today, as I said earlier, and I'm really very happy to have him. Um, when we prepared for this interview, you know, we were thinking about what should be our topic. And somehow, well, he had done so many interviews about his latest book about egregores, which is a lovely book, which you should really get to it. it will, even there will be now some German and Hungarian translations uh, to come out. Um, but there have been so many interviews in that. And also Mark said, well, you know, most of the people know me. Why talk about myself and my uh, my background, etc. And then we thought it would be very much in his vein and also a necessity to, call, to talk about occultism today, about the differences between occulture and contemporary occultism, and also where all of this thing that we love and that we need will carry us in the future and how we can influence where it will carry us in the future. And out of that came, I think, a highly, highly interesting talk and with Mark's deep, deep knowledge of things and also quite strong and severe opinions on some, on some points. Um, I thought this was really a lovely talk. I enjoyed it very much and I hope you will so too. Even though we are not going to speak about a particular book here today, I would like to give you a short introduction by reading one of his writings. And in order to get maybe a little bit into the subject of, of that, what we're going to talk about, even if we don't directly talk about shamanism and hermeticism as such, I chose a little ex excerpt from one of his monographs from his Institute for Hermetic Studies, a monograph that is called Shamanic and Hermetic Practices, Mercury's Children. Let me read you a short excerpt from a chapter called The Occult Renewal. Shamanism has been experiencing a profound revival over the last 20 years and continues to grow in acceptance and number of practitioners. Hermeticism, on the other hand, long the epitome of Western esotericism, at times appears to have already peaked and seen better days. As contemporary shamanism, often gleaned from cultures disconnected to Western society, seems to be looking for a next step, so hermeticism seems to be looking for a more practical means of expression. Hermeticism and shamanism Blood brothers that have been antagonists for too long may have both reached a point where they realize that they are two sides of the same coin, or as John and Caitlin Matthews state in the Western Way, a practical guide to the Western mystery tradition, the shamanic traditions are an inward spiral, while the hermetic tradition is an outward spiral. The maze, however, is the same. To this description by Matthews, we could add that shamanism is both inward and downward, into the body and the land. Hermeticism tends outward and upward, like the work of the Merkava mystics. Shamanism directs the mind and psychic forces towards addressing more mundane concerns, 
while hermeticism, as it is generally thought of, but not always so in traditional practice, focuses on more lofty ambitions. The most annoying obvious similarity between contemporary hermeticism and modern shamanism, also called neo-shamanism, is that they are, for the most part, reconstructed practices derived from academic research rather than continuations of earlier lineages. Well, I thought those lines would be a perfect starter for what we are going to talk about. And now let's not wait for much longer. Let's now go and meet Mark Stavish in his Pennsylvanian countryside. But um, also let me tell you then as, that as always, I will come back to you in about 30 minutes. And we are going to hear another piece of music. I'm quite eclectic again today with music. It has of course to do with what we talk in the interview. Well, you'll see. But for now, let's go and meet Mark Stavish. Here comes the interview. There are sometimes people when you do a podcast, which I've been doing for four years now, that you say, I want to have him. And next time I say, well, I need to have him on the show, really. And then suddenly four and a half years have passed and they have still not been on the show. And I don't know why this happens, but Mark Stavish, who is my guest here today, he is somebody like that. Uh, of course, from the very first moment that I was doing that podcast, I thought I must have him one day. First, maybe I was too shy and well, then it took time. And Mark, I'm glad we are finally here together on this show. Great to have you here and welcome on the Thoth Hermes podcast. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be here. It's lovely to have you. Uh, well, Mark, um, when we prepared for this interview here today, of course, we, we, we are talking a bit about your latest projects and your books that you that you uh, have uh, issued and written. And there are very, very many of them and many interviews about those books, especially about the last one, Egregores, are out there on the on the Internet. And somehow then you made a suggestion uh, that we should talk about the present and the future of all that what contemporary occultism etc means and should be and also have an outlook how we who are actually in that should work on it that it has a future and i really like that idea and i thank you for it but before we go there let's just a little bit give an overview of your work not so much in the books but of course, many people know, but maybe not everybody, especially over here in Europe, know about your Institute of Hermetic for Hermetic Studies. And maybe to enter the whole the whole subject, it would be a good idea if you introduced a little bit that institute, what led you to create it? I think it was in 98, if I remember well, and um, how that all happened and what was important and still is for you important there. Oh, thank you. Well, the Institute was started in 97, 1997, and uh, okay. it was a, a local, the, the idea was it was just going to be kind of a local study group. And we, we picked this wonderfully uh, 
difficult name, you know, the Wyoming Valley Society for Esoteric Studies. You know, this way we could kind of, you know, weed out anyone who didn't understand what esoteric was and have a yeah. little filter there. Uh, and almost everyone wasn't coming, was coming from outside the area, people from New York and Philadelphia, Washington, uh, Baltimore, uh, these areas coming on a regular basis, which you know, is a two and a half hour on average, a two and a half hour one way trip. And they would come twice monthly for our, our courses and uh, activities. And so it just grew from there. And uh, after 9-11, uh, things really took a hit. Uh, and we weren't really sure how stuff was uh, going to work for us. So would we survive or not? And we established then at that time with what resources we had, financial resources, uh, that we called the Samantin Fund, which was a fund to preserve those resources for promoting esoteric uh, practices and uh, research, but also mostly, you know, seminars and providing uh, money for organizations or movements uh, such as libraries. You know, we, we enhanced a lot of local libraries and university holdings through that fund. And it was the one it was interesting because it was the only one of its kind at the time, really. I mean, there are very few funds for esotericism, and, and we had one of the, we started one of the few. So things continued to go on, and we we established and we saw that we would survive, and uh, we changed our name to the Institute for Hermetic Studies, and began to expand outward with seminars and workshops. And over time, starting around uh, 2010, 11, a lot of these workshops were getting very heavily sponsored. So we took the recordings from those workshops, transcribe them and turn them into uh, a series of study guides. And these aren't straight transcriptions. We clean them up, you know, so that they're readable and informative. And uh, we created a whole series of study guides. And with that, earlier uh, lectures became monographs. So, you know, it took you four years to get a hold of us, but that's fine because in that four years, you know, now we're talking 2016, 2017, really, uh, in that time frame between 2010, 2012, 2016, uh, we, ha we had a lot going on, uh, but it really came to fruition. I mean, really came to fruition where we can point to it in the last few years and say, this is our study course. This is all of our, our production. Uh, this is our, our recordings and the videos from all of this. So what we have now is a online course uh, very much like a college courses, if you will, because you could take them either, uh, you know, a Chinese menu approach, order from one column, a column, or you can do the smart thing and just do everything, you know, and, and do the whole course. And it will give you a complete overview of uh, the very essential ideas and practices within Western esotericism. Now, I think the problem there is esotericism. So there's no such thing as esotericism, mm. and that's singular. But within that framework, you know, this is not, and, and not to sound derogatory, this is not Golden Dawn rehash. Okay, yeah. it is not that. Yeah. You know, I, my family uh, came over from Central Europe. It brought with it uh, its own uh, German folk traditions, which are very similar to what is uh, done in uh, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania German folk magic. We have a complete sure. course on that. And we show you how the 
classical medieval renaissance and modern systems can be integrated effectively and philosophically. And that's the key point there. If you get the right philosophical view, the right understanding, then the practice is almost secondary, meaning what you're doing is secondary because it'll work with it. Uh, yeah. So within not that, that, not that you are doing it, but what you are doing is secondary, right? Yes, right. What yes. you're doing, mm-hmm. because then you're able to yeah. work within that framework, that mental framework, the vision or the yeah. view. Yeah. So we we're really spend a lot of time helping people cultivate the right philosophical view, because what we see in modern magic, meaning those who are more or less doing a lot of Golden Dawn-esque stuff, is we see them looking at it as if it's cookie cutter or rather automatic. You know, I'm going to go to the light switch and flip the switch. You know, there's their personal involvement is often not understood and how that gets filtered out or, or, you know, how that filters the process for better or worse. So we have this over this complete course in very specific areas. We, we deal a great deal with uh, the nature of out afterlife survival, which many people think isn't terribly Gnostic of us, but what a, that, that's kind of neither here nor there. Um, you know, my statement is, you know, what are your esoteric practices doing for you while you're alive and what do they do for you when you're dead? I mean, those are the two questions you have to ask. So we try to focus on answering those questions and giving you methods that will help you in that process. So within that framework, we've also been very heavily influenced by uh, some of the very fundamental ideas within Amwork. You know, many people look down on the Rosicrucian Order Amwork, but their their fundamental teachings uh, are extremely important because they're very... They're, they're about training of the mind and that mental training process is critical. And, and that's often very absent from a lot of magical schools. Uh, moving forward, there's a tremendous influence from the philosophers of nature, Jean Dubuis, who started Dubuis, that in France. Right. You know, is it really? Okay. Which I was in, which I was involved with. So we have all of that framework there for people should they want to explore it and go into it. And that being said, uh, we have done a lot of interviews with people who are involved with the philosophers of nature, and they're available through um, through our Teachable platform, but we also have them more readily available through our blog, uh, Vox Hermes. So if you go to Vox Hermes and you scroll through, you'll see conversations from the edge, and there'll be interviews with uh, Patrice Malizé, the uh, Russ House. Uh, you know, we're, we're working on uh, a few other people, getting them online, uh, some interviews with some former Amwork grand, uh, grand officers. And, and these are in-depth interviews of what people really are thinking, what was really going on at the time, what they're really thinking. Uh, so I come at this very much in the sense of like a therapeutic uh, process where Honesty is very important. We have to talk about what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And that is very difficult in esotericism because we often come into it in denial of why we're there to begin with. Right. Well, so, well why are we there to begin with? What, because what we don't like that? our lives and we want to change them. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Got you. Got you. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I just say when we, when we begin to wrap our head around that and realize what esotericism is about. It's about an inner path of inner revelation. And with that inner inner revelation and enhancement of our capacity as an individual um, in all those different areas, then we begin to handle the problems of life in a more mature manner because we are maturing as a person. 
we are maturing as as an adult in the universe. And, you know, if you want to know what is an adept, you know, we'll say adeptus minor. I mean, that's that's OK. You're, you're 18 now. You're an you're an, uh, an adult in the universe. Uh, some numerologists would say you're 21, but that, that's neither here nor there. The point is you're the point is you're now an adult. <laughs> And that's yeah. what we're tr moving. That's the whole purpose of our course of study is to get people to recognize that is the, the, the function and purpose and to actualize their adulthood. That means their potentiality, but also their responsibility and to move on from there. So we've got a tremendous amount of great stuff. We have um, many activities going on in terms of classes. Uh, many people are involved. We have a twice monthly study session that we do. We also have... Um, a kind of social group, you know, I know you're you're a, a Freemason and in the United States, I, I don't know about Europe, what they have in the United States. For some reason, we have certain Masonic bodies that were developed in the late 19th century that were fundamentally of a um, social nature. You know, one of them is the, the Veiled Prophets, not terribly right. well known, but but I no. am one. Yeah. I, I, it is the okay. only, I, I joined it just for the fez. They told me they'd give me a fez, so I have... Oh, the, and, those are the one with the fez, right. Well, right. Okay. well they're not and, well known, but then there's the Shriners. The Shriners, the Shriners have the of course, they have it as well. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. So we have our own movement called the... Uh, it's and, and again, this was funny. It started just as kind of a private joke among a few of us. And then it just exploded. It just took off. We have the Institute for Hermetic Studies, Men of Letters, and our uh, official uh, twice yearly, and we mail it. This is not something, I mean, we, you can get a PDF of it, but if you're uh, paying the dues, you get it in the mail uh, of our our newsletter called the black fez. <laughs> okay. uh, so we have our okay. social arm too, uh, which right. is these guys who do, I got to, I have very little to do with that. I mean, I do contribute copy to it because there's uh, some, inf there's information about what we do, some, some comedy in there, some uh, uh, historical stuff. It's a mix. It's a nice entertaining yeah. mix, yeah. Yeah. but those guys who do it, they created it. It's just spectacular. And they, they went, uh, they went all off and they created uh, magnets and keychains and all this cool stuff for people who get it. But, you know, that, that's really nice and we enjoy that. It, it brings people together. But that's all. The reason we're trying to bring people together is simply to remind them of, in some respects with that, you know, when we enter into esotericism, it's so funny, and I, I know you've seen this, um, it's as if the people, they, they tie themselves to the pillar of severity. They crucify themselves to hard. You know? it's like, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm completely with you. But, but that's also... So we said, Go ahead, go ahead. That's also a bit European, you know, because 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 you said what's the difference? We don't have that part of Freemasonry. Maybe in the UK, but not not at all on the European continent. Of course, we have dinners afterwards. So, but we would never be able to create this a society like the one you just mentioned here. It wouldn't work, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, we you know we kind of need it because that's that's the other part. Again, when when getting into magic and, and the way magic is approached these days is so very. Uh, bookish mm -hmm. um, you, know, you know we we don't really stop and think about one first of all why are we entering into this path and unless we do that and are honest with ourselves 
we we will wander in the forest you know of errors as saint martin said we will yeah. wander there this astral delusion mm. so when we're honest about what we're here for then we can begin to ask the right questions mm-hmm. and as i said earlier the right question is what will this practice this thing which i must do what will this do for me while i'm alive and what will it do for me when i'm dead Mm-hmm. Now, even though the traditional initiations and traditional mysteries are about getting you to die while you are alive to prepare for death, sure. and masonry is a shadow of that, yeah. we don't really see that in yeah. modern esotericism. We don't see that. We see a lot of emphasis on a bunch of things, but telling you how to prepare your mind and your energies and everything for that process of, of death um, is not really presented. And as a result of that, that failure to accept that Saturnian reality of time, mm-hmm. what I've noticed in the last 40 years is that there is a lack of maturity in the contemporary esoteric movements, milieu in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which brings us right into the subject that we, we want to treat today. Um, to, to enter that a bit, I, I see, and uh, not that I'm surprised, but that I, it hits me that you very freely speak about esotericism, esoteric, etc. That word, which because of the way it has been used over the last 30, 40 years, has been vandalized, I almost would say. And many of those who use it um, um, for their serious work, like you do, like I try to do, um, would try to avoid that word and maybe take occultism or Western tradition or all kinds of um, descriptions around. But you use the word, word very freely. What I would always like to ask you, what's your definition of esotericism? Well, it's simply easy to help people with because we can say there's exoteric and say, you know, like a, like a bug, you know, it has an exoskeletal structure. That's something which out which holds it together we see, and they yeah. can wrap their head around that. And then there's esoteric or something which is interior. Mm-hmm. So sure. esoteric, esoteric is anything which is interior. So around here, you know, these old Polish and Italian grandmothers praying their rosaries that, you know, to, to Padre Pio and, and who really have some very interesting healing phenomena associated with it. Mm. That is esotericism. Yeah. You know, it's it, and helping, you know, and, and, and that's part of the transition of helping people understand the transitionary stages involved, that it's not simply as is too often de- described in popular literature, there's the religion of the churches and then there is the esotericism. No, there's a series of gradations here, you know, of which, and that's, you know, when we get into masonry, is it or isn't it? Well, it depends, right? Some aspects of masonry can be esoteric. Yeah. Some are definitely not. It's fraternal and ritualistic, but it's not a cult in the, yes. in the sense. Yes. Um, 
And then there are aspects which are truly very esoteric, so much so that Masons don't even know it's esoteric. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got you. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, but what, when we don't speak enough about what happens after life, as you just said, when we in the when not we, but when the esoteric world today is, has a lack of that, um, I think that's exactly uh, the lack of the hermetic thought that is there. Because and even if you say uh, if you cannot can only do esoteric work in ritual etc but you do not accept the social side of the group that is also needed maybe the the group that goes further on the social end can also go further on the deeper and more esoteric side maybe because you need both sides to unite and isn't it the problem of today's esotericism that we often want to avoid the dark the bad the death, uh, everything that is kind of mentally related to difficulty, because esotericism needs to be light and gay and happy, and uh, that, but it can't be. It has to be complete. Well, I think that that's one aspect of it. I think what we see happening is is uh, spirituality, and I'm using that term for the broad sense mm -hmm. of which esotericism is is going to fall into this category, is bifurcating. And in that in that split, of course, there's going to be subdivisions, but it, it's kind of splitting into two categories. And uh, one of them is very uh, open and public. And that's what we refer to as a culture or the yes. appearance of occult ideas and symbolism in popular culture. Mm -hmm. And we see that with masonry, too, where masonry suddenly becomes a brand. You know, you want to have I don't know how it is in Europe. I'm, hopefully it's not there. But here we, we see people putting their uh, square and compass and their G on everything. Yeah. And they're yeah, we they're wearing it like it's, a, mm. you know, and that's mm. while I appreciate the pride in the membership, that's detrimental, I think, to the nature of the, the, the organization. Mm. Mm -hmm. The. Other aspect of this bifurcation is going to be high quality, high demand, because in the United States and you see a lot of again, when you have popularization, there's always the complaint of weakening or watering down. Well, how you counter that is you don't water it down and you require more from people. Now, when you require more, uh, you also have to deliver more. You know, it's, it's a two way street. So what we see in contemporary spirituality in the general sense is as it went to be very popular in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and the 80s, 80s particularly, is that notion of everything is that light and happy, that bliss bunny thing we used to call it, the joke about yeah. it. But we also see a broad popularization of uh, darkness, that there is a uh, the sexy evil uh, sales pitch that we see a lot in popular occultism. And in popular mass media. So it's both in occultism and occulture. Right. The explosion of, you know, what is it? Gourmet grimoires. Uh, these custom, very expensive publications of dubious value um, that look great on your shelf, you know, but whatever is tend to focus on uh, various notions of what we would consider if not outright evil, diabolism and Satanism, then at least the darker aspects of the psyche. So you see this 
you know, it, it's not that cut and dried, but it, it, as, as, as you, your question suggests, but I can understand the question. I can understand why that would be be asked. So it's a little more complicated, uh, at least when we deal with occultism that is ritual magic, uh, primarily right. uh, witchcraft, uh, ceremonial magic, these things. But uh, it is there. So how do we uh, get people within the systems that we're working with to address their inner nature and the obstacles to having an experience of that inner nature. Uh, and, you know, Israel Regardi, for better or worse, suggested that people should go through psychotherapy before they start managing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and while I would agree with that, the fact is most people aren't going to do it. So what we end up with is a lot of people uh, teaching ceremonial magic who are self-taught. They learned it from a book or they might have learned it possibly from someone, but there isn't a lot of tradition behind it, which means there isn't a corporate memory. There isn't corporate experience, a body of experience that says, okay, now when you're going down that road, this is the possibilities of what you may encounter. Mm-hmm. And, and we wrote a, I wrote a monograph. Well, I wrote the actual essay in the mid nineties and then we published the monograph and the courses on teachable pathology of the sublime and the original lecture was titled uh, a funny thing happened on the way to tifereth <laughs> <laughs> right <Yeah>. right <laughs> and, and it's and it's about this is you know things will come up that are difficult because if they didn't sure. you wouldn't be growing and changing as a person oh of course of course but so this but is what to exactly the point exactly yeah, yeah exactly um but You now said several times that, of course, people take a book from the shelf and they self-teach or they teach even worse. They don't even know it themselves, but teach others, etc. Um, but of course, there is also the temptation that is much bigger than it used to be. Well, when you and I, we must be close in age. Uh, um, when when we started all that, it was at least over here in in, in my part of Europe, uh, not easy in the early 70s when I was a youngster, 15 years old or so, to to get those books or to to even get to know in a very Catholic surroundings that I grew up to get to know that it overall existed, right? And you had to work for it. You had to get it. Nowadays, and this sounds very very old and a commonplace, but of course you just turn on your computer and find tons of material. So how would you, for a young person who listens to this or who, who's just getting interested, how would you say that that person should start to go its way without falling into that temptation, but still using the sources that there are? Well, that's why we offer our first class for free and it's a six hour class unfolding the rose uh really listen to that and get a good idea a good foundation mm-hmm. and kind of let that guide you i mean even if you hopefully it'll guide you and you'll take our other classes but if you don't at least let it guide you where you go uh you need to really be able to ask serious questions and ask these questions what will this do for me when i'm alive and what will this do for me when i'm dead Now, you've got to get good answers to those questions. Then ask yourself these, ask the whoever it is, these teach these questions. Where did the practice come from? How is it to be done? 
and what can I expect as the result? Yeah, now, this is just yeah. the standard common sense. Then when you have the relationship with the group, as you should be involved with the group as best you can, because it's only in that social aspect that you get to, uh, as we say, create the smooth ashlar. You know, wear off your, your difficult uh, and rough spots. That, that group activity is important. Uh, so within that framework, that social aspect of the group of learning how to get along with others and to, uh, especially people who are on the path. I mean, I say that all the time. Look, if, if people on the path can get along with one another in a small group, you know, they are, of use, they are useless to the rest of the world. May I just hook in on that yeah. part a little bit? Because that's a question we always have in almost every interview with people like you. At some point, we come to the, the question, solitary, not versus group, ends group, I'd rather say. What is this to, for you the strength of the solitary work and what is needed in the solitary work? And what is the strength of group work? Uh, in what aspect is, it, is the group work needed in your point of view? Well, if you don't have a group to work with and all you can do is solitary, that's one thing. But if, you know, you, your motto is, you know, well, it's like herding cats, as they like to say about modern Wiccan neo-paganism, then that's not a good motto. Mm. That needs to change. You know, when we look at the solitary practitioners of history, uh, they were not solitary practitioners. They didn't self-learn. Uh, they had a teacher or teachers or uh, they had extensive lineage backgrounds. And then after many years of being educated and trained, went on to do solitary work. Mm -hmm. That wasn't their first thing. You know, very few people can do it because it takes a tremendous amount of self-honesty. Right. A tremendous amount. Yeah. And, so, yeah. and on top of that, you need a complete overview of the path in order to do it. So you know what are the, the, the benchmarks, you know, to know when you're going astray mm. or to know when you're heading in the right direction. You know, that's where the corporate uh, or collective knowledge or wisdom of a group comes into play. I mean, we don't think about that at all when we talk about, it, in theory, uh, getting a, a training in engineering or mathematics, you know, or, or finance. But suddenly, you know, when we have to do that with esotericism, we think, oh, I don't need any of that. I can become, an, immor I can become an immortal on my own. <laughs> I don't need any yeah. help. I'm going to read this book and... I'm good enough where I can do this. Well, there's probably a few people in any one generation who might be able to do that. But yeah. for the most part, as, as the joke goes about, uh, what is it? The, uh, the Tolkus in the, in the Tibetan tradition, which is, uh, you know, not everyone agrees with them. Uh, you know, the, the joke was even in there. Well, even a Tolku needs to be educated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah okay yeah so yeah yeah, yeah. You, you, yeah you need to find a place that will give you a good education right and so back to the question um how how do you find that i mean apart from going to your institute 
how you start it all. You must even find your institute. You know, I mean, it's not it's not evident the first thing you do when you open your computer or even when you start thinking about it, you find that. So what, what does a youngster or not so young person do when they discover their need for that? Just be careful. You know, you look around, you, you find what ideas you're interested in, um, whether it be Martinism, Rosicrucianism, uh, some of the esoteric aspects of masonry, like Memphis Muslim or something like mm. that, uh, Golden Dawn, uh, and you or, or other systems that may be more classically oriented. And you just take your time with them. Don't rush. You know, right. give yourself a year or two to find a place to work with and call home. The problem is that easy come, easy go. And right. that's the problem with the, the relationship aspect, what I was talking about. If you, if you don't develop relationships with teachers or people, then you never understand your role in this process of becoming. Yeah. You know, it's very narcissistic then. It becomes all about you. Well, yeah, it's, uh, I want to learn this stuff. Well, that's great. Now, go take that broom and go clean the floor. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't yeah. want to do that. Well, then get out. Yeah. And we don't, you see, that's the problem. We don't tell people that anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many of the organizations and movements are so desperate for members that they, they're incredibly lax on essential discipline. Including masonry. Including masonry. And that's why and that's why traditional observance masonry is doing so well in the United States mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's high demand. Yeah. So that's the yeah. other part. Make sure it's very clear what is required of you mm. to be in the organization and what the organization and its members or leaders you can expect from them. Yeah, yeah because it's a two way street in any case. It's Absolutely. a two way street. But Absolutely. that doesn't mean you're their equal. No, of course not. Of course not. And that's, and the, that's the hard. Well, I think that's <laughs> yeah. the hard part is that we like to think in terms of this egalitarianism that everyone, no, everyone is not equal. You certainly don't want me being your open heart surgeon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And when we come to esotericism, that uh, nature is by its existence hierarchical. Nature is hierarchical and esotericism in the inner path is an is a awakening and imitation and alignment with nature. And as the individual evolves, that is awakens, there is a de facto confirmment, which we call initiation of insight or wisdom, but also authority and power. Mm-hmm. Those initiations are simulated or intimated to some degree ritualistically and the rituals to some degree may be able to temporarily confer it what we need to realize is that no matter what practice we do we're seeking to use that outer tool inwardly esoterically to have that awakening as a permanent state within our own being within our own mind within our own awareness so that's the other aspect that you have to recognize that whatever you're getting 
is a tool. So learn how to use it well. Okay, thank you, Mark. And you guys, I promise you it will continue just as interesting and I believe even go more in-depth in the second part of the interview. But before that, let's listen to some music. Um, some music that I chose for you, um, just for the other things. Now we hear some music, then we go after music directly without further talk into the second part of the interview with Mark Stavish. And at the end of that very interview, we'll have immediately the third piece of music, after which I will come back and will let you know who will be my guest in a week. Right, um, so the piece of music that you hear now is by Eric Satie. You know that French composer. He wrote a lot of piano music in relation to surrealism, but also through surrealism, of course, also much related to the occult scene of the time of France in the mid and late 19th century. And he is one of the most exciting uh, composer probably for for occultists because he has done a lot of stuff um, what i did not know personally honestly i found out when i researched for this interview and for the music uh, i found out that Satie had also been part of that peladon group on the rose croix the society of the rose croix in paris a very strict and very christian oriented group very severe and oh, I, I believe a Rosicrucian group in a very strict way. And I chose a piece of music that he had particularly written as a ritual music for that group. Uh, he wrote several pieces for them. And this first piece is called Air de l'Ordre. So the, the music for the order. And that order is uh, Sonnerie de la Rose Croix is the big title of this whole series of pieces. So sonnery more or less music but in a very special way it's not so much melodic and so on uh, that music for the rose croix and you will hear it's very very strict music some might call it a bit boring i don't find it boring at all because when you listen to the harmonies and it all has its order within the music but you have to listen carefully and to be with it maybe you just close your eyes and listen to that. I think that's the best way to do it. Or imagine yourself in a Rosicrucian temple while the procedure of the ritual is going on and that music is being played. Right. And, um, well, the first piece of music was Mars because we recorded on Tuesday. And now this interview, this show is, as always, released on Sunday. So we take some sun music after the interview. Sun Circle, which is inspired by Native American music, only inspired, it's not at all Native American music, but inspired and it is a bit relaxing after the interview and after that heavy rosy cruising music that you're going to hear now. So now listen to Eric Satie, Sonnerie de la Rose Croix, Air de l'Ordre, played by French pianist Jean-Marc Thibaudet. And after that, We'll go back to meet Mark Stavish. Eric Satina.
what you were just saying about you don't want me to be your heart's open heart surgeon. Um, of course, esotericism and I'm talking here also a bit about my personal professional background, which is performing arts. Um, I see a relationship there between esotericism and the performing arts because um, the way you learn it and the way you get results in both aspect in both those uh, areas is very subjective sometimes it's it's e not easy to be ob objectivized <laughs> i don't know if that word exists in english but i think one mm -hmm. understands yeah, what i, I mean yeah, yeah. and and um, that makes it maybe a bit easier for those modern concepts to say, well, everybody can do everything, you know, uh, in the arts world, you find that very often that uh, the idea is the artwork. Um, well, I personally don't see it like that, because when you have to be on stage, you have to know how to speak, how to act, how to breathe and everything. Same is true, of course, in the esoteric world. Um, so is there a way to be more objective on the esoteric work and its results? Well, that's where some practices come in, like like alchemy, you know, in mineral alchemy, either you, you have either transformed something or you haven't, you know, it's it's very objective. But that's when you take a mineral alchemy as yes. a, a, a rooted in spiritual alchemy as a path. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. and, the, and there's other aspects, too. Um, if you're doing healing work, either the healing has occurred or it hasn't. Yeah. If you're doing certain psychic work, either the message was received or it wasn't. So there are certain ways to begin to objectively look at what we do. The problem is that the path begins in the realm of the imagination. And in that dreamy uh, lunar landscape, the silver screen of the mind, if you will, Mm. And it's like the theater in that sense, you know, too many actors and actresses, too many performers that I've met believe their own public relations, you know, and, and you have to tell them, you know, you, you, you just play a politician. You're not really one. You just play a doctor. You're not really one. Okay. So this, this is the notion of where does the imagination, which is the tool of our work. Mm-hmm. What guides that and what guides the imagination is, of course, we would say the intellect. So we have to have a, an intellectual capacity to reason. And reason is just that. It's what we use to separate and recombine or solve a coagula on the mental level. Mm -hmm. And of course, so many occultists are very caught up in that that that's where we see a lot of that backbiting and 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 just narcissistic uh, communication internet communication take place so with that emphasis too much on on trying to show who's the bigger brain in the room you know the smartest cat in the room there's a failure to understand the social aspect and we could say this is the realm of netsack you know and, and We've seen that in the other side, too. In the arts, one of the great problems are that everyone has to love you. Mm. You know, if people don't love you, 
you don't get the work. It's very personal. It's not just subjective. It's personal. Yeah. So that's where. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where we see a lot of people are willing. Hey. Why it's so easy to abuse people in the performing arts, in those industries, because there's 10,000 more behind you. Just like you, just as pretty, just as talented, some even more so. Yeah. So we see that uh, the emphasis on the social aspect can be overdone, too. And with that, an unwillingness to. Uh, well, what that is with the social is that sense of merging or loss of self that takes place in there. If that happens too early uh, without a good grounding in, in, in one's own awareness, then there's an over identification with the group or the social activity. And that's where we get into egregores and all of that. OK. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to look at this. You know, as, as you can tell, I've just what I've told what have I given you here is uh, the lower part of the tree of life. Right. Definitely. <laughs> okay, right. You see, I understand. Absolutely. This, absolutely. Right. This absolutely. is an abstract. This is very real. It's very real. So yeah. how do we survive in that context is, well, my self-identity or tiferet, my idea of myself as self, that focal point around which my existence, you know, circulates and, and revolves. And then from there, of course, there's other powers and potentialities too. But how do I become a strong, healthy human being? A mature human being. That's really what has to be the focus of all of this. How is this helping me to mature and be responsible? Because now I have to be responsible to that group. Hmm. Do you understand? If I'm there, I have to be responsible to others. Right. And, and right. It's, it's not just all about me. And, that, and this is where we get into the real work of esotericism, the real initiation, because this means tremendous amounts of personal sacrifice. Tremendous amounts. And it's all laid out for you. You're told this. I mean, those paths, if you want to use the Kabbalah as the model, all of those paths leading up to the tree of life are, they're difficult work. The, the tree, this, the, the solar aspects of uh of, of the sphere, uh, of course, are, are linked to the whole notion of sacrifice and crucifixion and resurrection. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we have to train people early on that this is going to hurt. Yeah. This is going to require a great deal of you. And uh, it's going to be very demanding. And now at yeah. the end, there's going to be tremendous benefit. This is the benefit. But we've got to just be honest up front. Yeah, 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 absolutely. No, um, I, I completely get you. Um, <laughs> the funny thing that happened on the way to Tiferet, as you just, as you said, <laughs> as you said before, um, contemporary occultism, you, you mentioned that when we prepared, I mean, that term contemporary uh, occultism, what, what is that? What, what, how would you define that, Mark? Well, that's really a mix of things. But I think right now, contemporary being right here and now with us is this occulture, this like occultism, which is kind of a contradiction, really, in, mm -hmm. in popular culture. So I, I think when we look at occultism, it's always contemporary, meaning that it always in some ways reflects the culture of its time. That's just the way it is. It has to be communicated and it's communicated through culture. Mm. Uh, what we're seeing, however, is that 
occultism in the modern sense really overestimates itself and sees itself as shaping culture. When in fact, uh, I would argue, as would some of the people I've spoken with, and we have some interviews with on uh, on our uh, blog and, and at Teachable, uh, mm-hmm. contemporary spiritual practices are increasingly being shaped by culture rather than shaping it, and and not in a good way. Mm-hmm. And by that, we, we hinted at some of that. You know, you can go on the Internet and Google something and you, you have all this information uh, and you think you know something. But, you, you know, it's information overload. You know, what do we do with it? How do we use it? Does, is it even valuable? Is it dangerous even? Some aspects mm-hmm. of this are truly dangerous. Not apparently, yeah. not clearly, but there, you know, there be dragons here. Yeah. And uh, again, that's... To actively engage in the invisible is to disrupt the status quo. Okay. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. Remember, why did you come to it? So you do a ritual to change your state of consciousness. That means you're disrupting something. Now, that change in consciousness may actually ripple out and have a change in effect in the physical environment around you. Right. Clearly in alchemy, that's the case, yeah. because otherwise the transmutation wouldn't take place. Clearly in healing, that's the case. Otherwise, the healing wouldn't take place. Or in psychokinesis, probably the greatest example of psychokinesis was documented by Jeffrey Mishlove in his book, PK Man. It's a spectacular book, a spectacular study of psychokinesis. Can you say a few m- words about that? Because I don't think many people know that. Well, uh Uh, Jeffrey Mishlove, the host of New Thinking Aloud, uh, and you can go on there and just go to Google, excuse me, to, to YouTube and look him up and look at his uh, encounters with what's called PK Man. And that's the name of the book. And this is a, right. a, a fellow he knew who was just a he was literally a walking thunderstorm. Uh, he, he could do tremendous amounts of psychokinetic uh, phenomena. Uh, now, he was personally a disaster, too. So there's some interesting aspects of how does ethics fit into this? You know, how does morality and ethics fit into to these psychic awakenings? Uh, but it's an important book to read. And just go on YouTube and listen to several of the videos about it with, with Jeffrey Mishlove, and, and you'll find it fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you see this aspect of uh, there is danger there because, uh, on the other hand, when we actively engage in the invisible and there's a porousness opening up, uh, is that porousness controlled? We see people particularly involved in the paranormal research who uh, don't have a connection to tradition, don't understand tradition. They're locked in their own egregore. I mean, it's, it's really horrible to see uh, because it, it's sad, really. And I, I don't mean that in a cruel way, but you know, it's, it's, you know, when you're doing the same thing for 10 or 20 years and there is no chain, when there's just data collection, then you have to wonder, you know, what, what is being learned from this? And in that same framework, uh, you see that there is uh, tremendous problems of people who do a lot of psychic research, both to their physical and mental health. Now, that was well documented in the book, The Trickster and the Paranormal by George Hansen. Yeah, and, yeah, and, of course. And yeah. that really should be uh, 
you know, priority reading. I spoke about that in my book on egregores, uh, where we talked about some things that really went bad in some occult lodges. And I, I know those people and I know what happened. And that's not to frighten people. It's just to say this is a potential that's out there and you need to be aware of it. You know, it, it's not to scare you, but to say you have to approach this in, a, in an adult and mature and uh, uh, cautious manner. And that means you yeah. need someone to help you for when things go wrong, because things will go wrong. It's just the nature of it. They, they, they have to go wrong. Otherwise, yeah. you can't learn from them. Of course. Of course. Now, you, you and I, we are people who like what we are doing here, who, who want to progress and who, who like the whole I'm looking for the word. I don't want to call it a system, but the whole the, the whole approach to life and death, as you as you pointed it out, right? And um, so, of course, it's we feel it as our duty to preserve something, and at the same time develop it in a way that it can be sustainable in the future. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And so, cont contemporary esotericism is not sustainable. Exactly. That's what I wanted to go for. Exactly. So how can that be done? How it's not traditional alone, because also esotericism and occultism needs to find its place, its footstand in the time it lives. It is pre practice. So how, in your way, in your opinion, can that be achieved? Well, I can only look at the current situation, what we need currently, of course, 15, 20 years from now, that may change. Sure. 30, 60 years from now, it will definitely be somewhat different. However, when I look back at the last 40 years and, you know, 15 years ago, I said, this is what we need to do. And that is the call for hermetic renewal. And I wrote about this extensively. There is a lot of agreement, but no action. And what I realized over time is that too many of our occultists get stuck again in Yesod, the realm of the imagination. Mm -hmm. And you need to always measure your actions against what is really happening on the ground in the physical world. Remember, Asaya is the realm of action. Sure. You know, what, is, what are we doing here? So if you want to change your karma, you know, your destiny, your habit patterns, first change your thinking, think three good thoughts a day, then change your speech, say three nice things a day to people, and then do three good things a day and then stretch. So we need to change our habit patterns and the habit patterns we have, again, within contemporary esotericism are that it's free. No, it's not. I don't need people. Yes, you do. <laughs> um, what else? I can uh, I can do this quickly. No, you can't. No, I can't. <laughs> okay, I think maybe just those three basic things. Those things don't apply to anything else. So esoteric movements need to require more of their students. And that means time, talent, and treasure. You need to require more of those. And you have to demonstrate why that's a value. Like here at the Institute, we've done our, we've been around for 22 years. We did our fourth annual conference this year. And what we're doing right now is we're holding a endowment fundraiser. We're raising uh, $25,000. Now, I know many in the occult movement who think that's a ton of money. That's not even the price of a used car. 
I mean, let's be serious here. You in the United States right now, you'll get a used car for that amount. Mm. Okay, let's put it in real perspective. Let's yeah. be honest. Yeah, yeah. I'm asking. I've got 500 people on our over 500 students on our list. That would be fifty dollars a piece. Actually, less than that because we've got over 500. Yeah. yeah. Let's be honest here. Yeah. This yeah. is where you got to be honest. What do we want the money for? For an endowment. What is an endowment? An endowment is your future. That is what mature organizations do. Just as you need to plan for your retirement and you need to save and have something for the future, so too do organizations and movements. You need to have resources and here it's physical material resources for the future. If we're going to keep our conference going, well, just answer this. How? How's it going to happen? Yeah. yeah. It's going to happen because at least if we get that money and we will and we leave that alone in 10 years from now, you see time. This is the Saturn part. You move out of the adolescent view that's too mercurial. You know, it's the religion of the book. You know, we don't have temples. We've got bookstores. Mm-hmm. That's the other mm-hmm. thing. You know, demand, require. You know, you're not going to be doing this in your basement anymore. You're not going to be doing it in the, you know, pushing the, 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 the couch you know, against the wall or trying to get the masons to give you room, you know, cheap temple rooms. You're going to require and build your own space. You're going to rent your own quarters. That's what they did in the Golden Dawn. You know, that's what the masons had to do. You know, it, it's it's really, honestly, it's time to grow up but and act that, like adults. That's a very interesting point, uh, a very practical point, actually, because um, when you read those old books still with Rigardi and, and but even older, of course, everybody speaks about building your own space, your own room, the room where you do your work and you don't do anything else in that room. Well, for young families in the 21st century that has seriously in in bigger cities etc become a real problem if they wanted to do that so is adapting that also something that we need to do or what's your solution for that particular problem therein lies the really difficult decision i mean that's really difficult now i mean you have to make a decision about where you're going to live true Okay, I where I live, it allows me to do this. Mm-hmm. We made the decision to live the way we do so we can do this. You're going to have to, too. That's the reality. I'm and pushing, that, that, that's the yeah, hard part. Exactly. I'm pushing that question on purpose, uh, not, yeah. not to contradict you, but to, to yeah. push you. But it is a reality of young families in the cities that room is just unaffordable. I understand. And you can you can find practices that are not ritualistic that allow you to do more interior work. Mm. Uh, You can work with smaller alchemical labs. But even in the 18th century, uh, an alchemical lab was very expensive. And some of these orders in order to uh, these lodges in order to discourage efforts at gold making uh, would prohibit members from having their own lab. So you would go to the lodge and you'd have to use the lab that was there. Mm-hmm. This is where, you know, if we're going to talk about democracy or the democratizing of occultism, 
what that means is it's not that you're equal. It's that means you get to pay an equal amount. You Many hands lighten the load. Well, that means you've got a lift. Mm-hmm. So if, if you can't do it alone, let show me this age of Aquarius, baby. Organize a group, get together, pay the bills and make it happen. Mm-hmm. That's what that Freemason did in the beginning, right? Right. At that point, now you've proven to me that you're people who I can at least begin to think are capable. And this sounds harsh, but it's the reality. If you're not capable of getting along well enough with each other to organize a group to solve your own problems, your mutual problems of, of, of resources, why should I listen to you about anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Now, True. now let's be and I'm, I'm saying this, too. We're also having this conversation on a Tuesday. So, you know, Tuesday is ruled by Mars. And and for me, Mars and Tuesday and Saturdays are take no prisoner days. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so, yeah, you know, yeah. 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 Good. Good. It, yeah, just, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's yeah. it's just the way it is. And we have to stop pretending otherwise. No, I, I'm with you. I, but I wanted to hear you say it as well, because I think it's an important thing to be said and to be to be thought and done, of course. Well, of that's course. part of that bifurcation I talked about. Those groups which are more demanding and have that requirement, they're going to prosper. They're going to be smaller. Yeah. But yeah. they're going to prosper. And they'll survive into the future. And you're you're confident with that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Because Why? zealots always win. Even if you don't, even if you disagree with the organization of the group, the fact that they're a higher demand organization means that there's more emotional engagement, which means there's greater survivability. There's more juice behind it. There's more energy. That is true. Yeah. 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 I would like to come back a little bit on that subject of afterlife survival, as you called it in the beginning. And um, well, let's call it life and death approach of, of occultism and related to the future of occultism. Um, can, you, can you expand a little bit on, on that aspect in general? Because um, I think uh, it's something that is really underrated in today's occultist practice, as you said yourself. And I would like to hear you a bit more on, on that aspect. When we look at why we do certain practices, <clears throat> particularly visualization practices, we often are told that we do the visualization where we have to develop our concentration to attune to particular energies, whatever that means or may mean. The real reason or the most fundamental reason, I should say, that we undertake these practices is so that we can develop a stability of consciousness, a mm. stable focal point of self-awareness, and then build from that. So. When we are, say, doing meditations on the earth, it's the inner earth we're trying to awaken and be realized. Well, why? So that we have stability. That stability allows us to maintain awareness in the great astral sea of Yasad as the waves go crashing around us, we're not pulled away. And everyone's had this experience. You sit down to meditate, you're visualizing, everything's going well, a thought comes up and off you go. <laughs> and then, you know, realize, oh, what happened? Oh, I'm, and then you bring your mind back. And then off you go again. So we we need to really understand the importance of that focal point of awareness then translates over into what happens when we do lucid dreaming. Many people have had the experience of a lucid dream or maybe even an out-of-body experience of some kind 
but they can't hold on to it because they can't mm. balance their mind appropriately. When you learn to balance your mind, have it stabilized appropriately where you're stable and still observing, engaging and observing, just as we are now, what you're beginning to do is to develop what we could call the lunar or solar bodies, as they call it in some structures and some systems. And this is a focal point of awareness devoid of physical support. Your physical body is essential because it provides you the physical supports to stabilize consciousness. What you need to do, what spiritual practices are to do, particularly those regarding astral projection and the body of light and the visualizations involved in them, are not to build just a conduit for awareness, but to build an actual tangible structure of a, of a psychic nature that allows you to have a stable consciousness in these psychic dimensions and without a physical body. And if you don't develop that, you're in trouble when you die. Yeah. The trouble is that I can't contradict you because I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, definitely. I see, I see what you mean. Definitely. Definitely. Um, let's come back a little bit into 2021 because uh, um, I would like, before we have to end this interview, unfortunately, our time is almost up, Mark, and uh, it has passed very quickly. And I hope we don't have another four years to wait to meet again here. Um, but um, I would like to come back to Mark Stavish as a person for for a few moments, because um, I always try to end those interviews first with a question on your next projects. May they be bookish, may they be with your institute, may they be other. So what uh, is your actual project? What are you going to do in the next year or so that we should have an eye on and expect from you? Well, as far as the Institute goes, our, our main focus right now is the endowment, because that's what's going to give us resources, as we say, for another 20 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what's going to push forward. So that's one aspect that we're working on. Uh, there are some publications in the works uh, where we're getting those organized. I do have my book on Freemasonry is being re-released by Within Inner Traditions. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. we do wonderful mm-hmm. work. They're great to work with. Mm-hmm. My book on egregores is in German and Hungarian. I so, saw that. That is amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's out there. And... Uh, I think that seems to be it. I mean, that's a lot going on. People, there's a lot behind the scenes with that. Um, mm. And, you know, as far as this interview goes, again, we, we are on a Tuesday. So uh, don't don't wait four years, you know, call me anytime and let's do it on a Friday. I'll be much more. Agree- that's Venus. I'll be much more agreeable <laughs> on a Friday for an interview. We should do it then. Uh, people like it. But but, you know, this is a serious topic. And, and uh, I just it want is. people to really understand you, if you want traditional experiences, you need to take a traditional view and then you need to do as best as close as you can as traditional practices. And yeah. if you can't do them alone for whatever reason, then get together with other people and make the sacrifice. Those paths to Tifereth, they're not pleasant. The one is the devil, which means you go through hell on some level. The other is death, which goes through dissolution. I mean, the other path is, uh, you know, know, Sagittarius, it's somewhat expansive. But even there, there's there's a letting go. You have to let 
your arms open, your hands open and let go of whatever you're holding on to and, and, and trust the process. And I think this is what is really important at this time. It always has been just certain cycles make it more apparent is relax and hand your problems over and all your good things, everything over to your inner self. Everything becomes a part of your path and mentally make that offering to the inner self. I hand this over everything, any money I make, any money I give away, any food I eat, any food I give away, any clothes I put on, any clothes I give away and learn gratitude. Gratitude, courage, and generosity. And the risk-taking that goes with them will help you grow in a manner uh, far more than, than you can possibly imagine. So that's what we encourage. Well, that's great final words. Thank you, Mark. There's something I can promise that I will not wait for four years. Um, I haven't waited, but anyway, it turned out like that. And but it was the right moment, I believe, even though it was a Tuesday, um, except for <laughs> that storm that almost interrupted us a little bit here. It's so fitting. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. Was well, there lightning? Uh, not so much, but really windy to be good. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Mark, for your time. Thank you for being with us here uh, next time on the Friday. And uh, we'll keep people posted when which Friday that will be. This interview is going to come out on a Sunday. So uh, whatever that means to you. Wonderful. Wonderfully solar. <laughs> ah, so good. Very good. Thank you, Mark. And goodbye for now. And speak to you Bye -bye. soon, I hope. Bye.
Sun Circle, piece of music inspired by Native American music, as you could hear. Um, sun Circle, it gives us, bring, brings us back some sunlight and uh, whatever day you're listening to, I think sun is always good to bring into our lives. So here we are and uh, I hope you enjoyed. But first of all, I hope you enjoyed that interview. Um, I think Mark had extraordinary things to say and uh, as he pointed out, there is the Institute of Her for Hermetic uh, Studies and I will of course put also a link for that course that he mentioned, that free course, that introductory course of six hours into our show notes. So if you're interested to listen to that, go there, enjoy it and well, maybe you'll go further with his institute after that. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for your time and thank you all for being here with me today and hopefully enjoying the show. Uh, I, it was a pleasure for me to have you with me here today and I do hope that you will come back next week to meet again and to listen to what we have to say then. Next week, July 11, my guest will be Stuart Cleland. Stuart is British from the UK and he is going to talk with me about the Green Book of the Elu Cohens. The Elu Cohens, that uh, most fascinating group uh, in the 18th century with uh, a Masonic society, but very, very esoteric, deeply esoteric. The Order of Night Mason Elect Cohens of the Universe is their full title. And the Green Book was their ritual book and it has been reissued and translated into English uh, lately by Louis Masonic, that great London-based uh, Masonic publishing house. Masonic mainly, but not only, led by Martin Fox, who already was once here on this show as my guest. And uh, Stuart Clement, Joseph Weges and uh, uh, Steve Adams have together translated, annotated, edited and designed that book. A lovely, lovely book, really, uh, uh, quite a volume and highly interesting, not only for people interested in Masonic history, but especially also for people interested in magical history, because this is a real magical book and content. So Stuart Cleland will be with me next week. I hope you'll be back next week and for the time being, well, enjoy the week, have a good one and hope everything is fine with you, that all of you are more or less getting out of that pandemic. I know there are still some areas in the world where it is still heavily affecting uh, life. Wish you all the best down there, wherever you are. And for the time being here on the Thought Hermes podcast, I can only tell you, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.